Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. And what happened in Israel on October 7th was just, it was horrendous. And, I, you know, the Holy Spirit began drawing me to, hey, we, sh- we should learn, we should teach our guys about, about Israel and the importance of the Jewish people and the importance of Israel and God's plans uh, for salvation for humanity. And, and I had no idea that the world, and, and including you know, right here at home in the States, would, would, would see so many just prolific anti-Semitic riots and protests. I had no clue that would happen, but I really felt the Lord draw me to this. And so uh, we started last week we, uh, talking about evil. And we talked about the existence of evil. And there's a real devil. There's real darkness. There's real demons. And they're out to destroy what God has created. And I think what you saw in the reports you've read of what happened in Israel, that's, it's, it's certainly evil. Uh, we can be bad all by ourselves. I don't need the enemy to help me do that. However, there are certain acts that you just make you question, okay, you know, I get that man can be bad in its own, for sure. We can do some things that are pretty evil without any help. But some acts are so atrocious and so brutal and so vicious. Surely there has to be some kind of more sinister influence at play. And there is. And, and, and we talked a lot about that last week, how the enemy is actually real. And, 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 and yet we have the authority from the power of God's Spirit to confront the enemy and to defeat the enemy wherever he happens to operate. And, and so that, that was an important message last week. Now this week we're shifting gears a little bit. And so this week and next week we're going to spend time talking about the nation of Israel itself and how it, how it works, uh, the people working to God's plan. And there's a lot of commentary out there. It's funny that Taylor mentioned like, hey, don't believe everything you hear about Iran. That God wants to do a new work in Iran. And, and I would say the same thing with what you're seeing uh, on the news or reading about the news with Israel. Don't, just don't worry about that. There's a spiritual context that is not going to get talked about in your media. And, and you need to understand the spiritual context behind what is happening overseas. You know, here, here in the West, America, Europe, we're part of the Western culture. We tend to see things like the present and the here and now. Like everything matters today. And, and if you think that we don't think that way, look at our cultural state right now. Everything is about seizing the moment, seizing the day and what we're in. If you're in the Eastern part of the world, Eastern cultures have a whole different mindset. They view the present only, you know, we're here because of the past, right? The past for somebody in an Eastern mindset, even if it's thousands of years ago, it's like it happened yesterday. And so everything in the past has its, has its, its roots in what's happening in the present, and we're here because of it. And so you have to understand that what's happening over there is not just some kind of, well, it happened a few weeks ago when there's a conflict. And no, no, it's so much deeper than that. From a cultural perspective, you got to have the right context. Culturally speaking, Eastern people see the world in a much longer viewpoint than we do here in the West. But spiritually speaking, out of this, the mandate of, 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 for Israel to exist from Scripture and to possess the land that they're in, which we're going to talk about here this morning. If you don't understand scripturally the role that Israel plays and the Jewish people play in God's plan for salvation 
in God's plan for, you know, when Christ returns, then you're not going to fully understand everything happening in our world today either. You really have to have a, a good root in the Word of God. And so one of the questions I've gotten over the years from people is certainly when we have a conflict like what's happening right now kind of kind of uh, ramp up is, well, why, why should Israel, you know, why, why Israel? Why should we pay attention? Why should it matter? In fact, why did God choose Israel? I mean, couldn't God have chosen anybody? And I guess He could have. He could have chosen, you know, the English, but that would have been pretty boring, you know? <laughs> he could have chosen the Japanese. He could have chosen any, any people group on the planet, but He chose the Jewish people. And Scripture doesn't give us an answer as to why. We don't know why God chose them, but He, he did. But you can understand the purpose that God has and the plan that God has for Israel and for us by understanding the promises that God made to the Jewish people. And so I, I will not be able to cover everything today that I want to cover. I'll just give that out there now. This is going to be a real teach-heavy kind of message, and I'm going to do my absolute best to, to not get too heavy in the weeds. I nerd out sometimes, man, and so, I, so I'm going to try not to do that, but I want you to understand some pretty important passages in Scripture and how they pertain to where we are today and how they, they impact the, the people of Israel as well. So Genesis 3.15, that's where I want to take you to first here this morning. Genesis 3.15, uh, God has confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, and the devil was there as well. He's, he's, he's got a front row seat to what's happening, and the Lord speaks, and he says this, and I will cause hostility between you, talking to the, the serpent, the devil, and the woman. Now, when he, the woman here is not necessarily a reference to Eve herself. We're talking on a generic level, Humanity in general, okay? Between your offspring, you being Satan, your offspring, and say, so, wait a minute, he's, he, I didn't think angels could have offspring. They can't. Okay, we don't believe in Hercules and you know demigods and that kind of thing. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a question posed to Jesus in the New Testament. Someone asks about what marriage will be like in eternity, and Jesus says, "Well, it's going to be like you're going to be like the angels. There's neither you know, there's no male nor female. Not in the sense that gender doesn't matter, but in the sense that there's no romanticism. There's no there's no repopulation. There is no offspring in eternity. Okay, the angels are not made that way. Satan is an angel. He's an angelic being. We talked about that last week. So what we're talking Talking about here are representations of evil. So the representation and manifestations of evil that we see in the world today are the result of what? They're the result of the enemy of Satan and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I'm going to get in the weeds for a little bit here just for a moment, but hang with me. This is a generic picture of humanity at odds with an unresolved conflict against the forces of evil, against the real de devil and real demons, okay? But then God moves. He has a plurality, her offspring, humans, descendants, humanity. And then all of a sudden, he kind of changes gears a little bit, and he gets to a singular noun, and he says, he will strike your, your head or crush your head. Now, why does God do that? Well, we know who he is today. We know now that to be, to be Jesus. But at the time, no one knew. Not even the devil knew what God was, was talking about here. And so the Hebrew word for, for head in Genesis 3.15, it can refer to a physical head. But the way that it's used in context, it, it, it means this. The chief source of origin or authority. And so what God is saying is he's saying he, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, he will crush the chief source of evil. The authority of evil being the devil. He will crush him. Now, again, at the time this is given, God knows who this person is. But Adam and Eve, they don't have a clue. 
The devil doesn't know either. He doesn't have a clue who this is. But here's what Satan knows. Satan knows this. From this point forward, humanity is his enemy. I mean, it was already his enemy because God created man and he has set himself against the Lord. Now there's even more reason to hate humanity because there is this special person, a special human being who will come and be my undoing. And so now he's even dead set more against the human race. Remember, Satan's a created being. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And I think sometimes you read scripture, you think Satan and God are equals. You know, hey, he knows what God knows. That's not true. He doesn't. He's limited. He's finite in his knowledge. And so so not even Satan at this point knows what God is really talking about. And so God speaks to a guy later on named Abraham. So now we know that humanity is going to be the, the, the devil's undoing. We don't know how yet. And then Abraham comes into the picture later. Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham and he tells him that he will bless all the peoples of the world through him. Now how is he going to do that? Well, Genesis 15, we're going to be out here in a moment. This is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Abraham's not quite 100 years old. He's pretty close, but not quite. He doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have kids. In ancient history, uh, if you don't have an heir, a male heir, to receive all of your, your inheritance, you have to adopt somebody. So he adopts a servant to be the beneficiary. And God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, he says this, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. And that's how many descendants you will have. And Abram, he had not had his name changed yet to Abraham at this point. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Verse number six is, is, is if, you, if you're a note taker, this is going to be your day today. But verse number six is important. One of the most powerful verses in scripture. Where Abraham believes the Lord, God counts it as righteousness. From this point forward, Abraham is all in. He's all in. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to believe God. I'm there. And he believes that God will keep his promises and he credits, or God credits that belief as, as righteousness and it seals the deal for Abraham being set apart for the Lord. But there's a problem for Abraham, see? Like he believes God will give him an heir. He believes that. I'll see one in my lifetime. I can get behind that. But then God had also said that he would give Abraham the land he's in. Now Abraham's got an issue with that. He's just one guy. He's just one family. How can they possibly fill the land that God's going to give him? And so he has this question in verse number 8 that he poses to the Lord about his descendants. How can I be sure my descendants will inherit the land? So what does God do? He instructs him to take a few animals and sacrifice them, cut them in half and spread them apart. He cuts a heifer, a goat, and a ram in half, and then he falls into a very deep sleep. And I want to pick up here. And, and, and this right here, we're fixing to read. Genesis 15, 13 through 20, I think it's 21. Uh, this is an incredibly important passage. And I cannot underscore to you this morning how important this passage is. Uh, it, it, it can get a little complex, but we're going to simplify it as best we can here today. <clears throat> Verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, 
he fell into a deep sleep. You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, and they'll be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I'll punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end, they'll come away with great wealth. But as for you, you'll die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet warranted their destruction." So how will the nations be blessed through Abraham? Well, God's going to give him descendants. They're going to be too numerous to count. You're going to have an entire nation that comes out of you, okay? And that's exactly what happens. Abraham doesn't see this part at, you know, in his lifetime, but he's going to have a grandson named Jacob. And Jacob's going to have 12 sons. And these 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah and Simeon and you know, Benjamin. And, and one of those sons named Joseph goes missing. His brother sell him as a slave to the Egyptians. And through a wild series of events, Joseph goes from slave to prime minister. He's the number two guy in Egypt. There's a severe famine that strikes the land. Joseph saves Egypt. Jacob and his family come down to Egypt. They're saved. And there's about 70, 75 or so of, of that family who are now in Egypt. That's still not enough to possess the lamb. What happens is Joseph dies and, and, and Pharaoh dies. And the succeeding Pharaohs have no knowledge of the story and what God did and what Joseph did. All they see is that the, the Hebrews are multiplying like crazy. And they're worried about, hey, you know what? Because of where they're at in Egypt, they're close to you know, uh, the land of Goshen. They're close to that Sinai Isthmus. And the Hittites are their enemies. The Hittites were in Turkey and all throughout Israel. At this point, they're like, you know, if these guys join the Hittites, we are totally screwed. We can't have that happen. So what do they do? They enslave the Hebrews to prevent that kind of alliance from happening. And by doing so, it keeps the people of Israel trapped in Egypt, where they continue to grow, so that by the time Moses leads them out, there's a 600,000 different Jews who are walking out of Egypt. And they take with them the wealth of Egypt as well as they leave. Now they have people and they have the wealth to go and possess the land. When Joshua leads Israel into the promised land and the conquest of Canaan, they number about a million. And all that happens in the years after Abraham. Verse 17, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the, the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day, and he said, I've given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Shebusites, every other eye you want to throw in for good measure, we got them covered, okay? Like they're there. All that's yours. Now, the, the, the fire pot and the torch, I mean, explain, that seems kind of weird. What the heck is that, right? Well, what, here's what that is. Abram, Abraham is from the land of Ur, which today is between Baghdad and Mosul in Iraq, okay? That's where he's from. And in that part of, of the world in ancient times, ovens, fire pots, fire, torches, those were motives, symbols, figures for the divine. So what's God doing? God is coming to Abraham in a dream, in a vision, using the same allegory, motive, that he would be familiar, that, that signify the divine, so that Abraham knows that what he's seeing happen is in fact God himself visiting him. One of the things that's happening in the Muslim world right now, and, and Sean and Taylor could speak to this, is you're having Muslims around the world who are having dreams. And in these dreams comes Jesus. Now he doesn't always look the way you would picture him to look here in America. 
but it's Jesus nevertheless and their context and they know right away who they're talking to and who it is. Same kind of thing. God appears to Abraham and he, and he walks between the carcasses. Now that's kind of a weird thing. To have, you have the carcasses spread apart and you have blood and entrails all in the middle. And, and, and this is very important. I want you to pay attention because man, this right here, this is where everything stems from. David, Jesus, everything in Scripture emanates from what I'm about to explain to you right now. In this dream, the animals are, are cut apart. That is super weird to us. But the reason why is in that day and age, if you were going to make a treaty or a covenant or a promise with somebody, you would take animals and you would cut them in half, spread them apart, the blood and entrails are all in the middle, and you'd be on one side, the other person on the other side, and, and you would walk right past each other in the middle. You wouldn't turn your back, it's disrespectful, so instead you would walk backwards like this. So you'd walk up, and then you'd walk back passing each other. And why would you do that? That signified this. May we be like these animals if one of us or both of us breaks this covenant or this treaty. What's God doing? God is making a covenant with Abraham without Abraham. Abraham's in a sleep. He's not walking through. It's just God. That means this. God is staking his name and his honor and all who he is on this covenant. And he will uphold it. And he will put it together. And, and he will hold himself accountable to fulfilling the covenant. That produced what? This covenant encompasses the lands of Israel. It encompasses the kings. And it encompasses the new covenant that Jeremiah 31 talks about where Christ ushers them with his death and sacrifice. That's how Abraham blesses the nations through his line is through Jesus. And so God is saying, I will uphold all of that and put it on me to do it. And so he walks back and forth. Abraham is, is in a dream throughout this entire process. And the land that God's going to give them starts with the Wadi El Aresh, which is kind of the middle part of the Sinai Peninsula. It's a dry riverbed that fills up during the rainy season. And it goes all the way up to the Euphrates. Not the Euphrates in Iraq, but the Euphrates River in, that, in, in Syria, where the northwestern arm is at. And the closest Israel's ever been to possessing all of this was during the reigns of King David and King Solomon. So Genesis 17, here's what I want to kind of pick up here with this story. Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that he can enjoy the benefits of the covenant, but he has to make sure that he serves him. God says, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. In other words, live a devout, obedient life. This is important. The Abrahamic covenant, as this has come to, to be known as, it ties Israel to the land. This is their land, okay? And, and, but notice it's conditional, as well. A couple of things have to happen. Yes, God made the covenant with himself. May they be a curse on the Lord if he breaks it. That's what God does by walking back and forth. Okay? But he invites Abraham to still be a part of it on a conditional basis. If you serve and follow me, you can have the blessings of this covenant that I'm making with you today. Well, how do you do that? What's the symbol of that? Abraham is circumcised. All of the Jewish males after him are circumcised. Why? It was a physical sign showing that you are a covenant people belonging to the Lord and all the recipients, all, all the blessings that, you're, uh, that you can receive come from that covenant. 
And if Abraham asked to obey and follow the Lord, you would presume his descendants have to do the same thing. And they do. In Deuteronomy, before going into the land, they, they separate. And one group goes to Mount Gerizim, one group goes to Mount Ebal, and they shout blessings and curses for following the Lord. And one of the curses that they affirm is that if they break this covenant through their disobedience to God and His Word, the Lord has the right to remove them from the land for whatever allotment of time He would like to do so as a, a punishment for that. Now, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'll talk about that more next week. But for our purposes today, you need to know that they affirm that. And so they have this blessing that ties them to the land. Now, if you're the devil, and you're watching all this play out, okay, I know humanity is my undoing. What else do I know? Well, there's this guy named Abraham, whom God especially set apart now, whom God has given a, all kinds of blessings to and, and promises to. So clearly, he's pretty important. So now I'm setting my sights on this guy and his descendants. Fast forward to King David. God's made a covenant with Abraham for the land. King David and Israel possess most, if not all of it at that point. And, and, and David wants to build a kingdom or a temple for the Lord. He goes, man, I want to build a house for the name of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, where God can be praised and worshipped. And God says, you can't do that. You're a man of war. You've got too much blood in your hands. Your son will do it, though. He'll be a man of peace, and he can build a temple. He goes, but I want to give you a promise, David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. God says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This is known as the Davidic Covenant where God promises a line of kings that would ascend from David. And he tells David he's going to have a dynasty, but not just any dynasty. It will go forever, eternally. It will last. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. A couple of problems. Number one, if you know your Bible a little bit, <clears throat> you might already be there. Problem number one is that after King Solomon's death, because of Solomon's sin, God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom apart. But for the sake of my servant David, God says, because of the promise I gave to him, I'm going to keep the line of the kings going. So ten tribes comprise the northern kingdom of Israel, and they break off. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remain in the south. And it is Judah that has the Davidic line of the kings that continues. Problem number two, the last Davidic king, Zedekiah, he was removed by Babylon in 586 B.C. Babylonians came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Judah. Zedekiah is killed. His, uh, his sons, I'm sorry, he's not killed. His sons are killed. And he's deposed as king. And there hasn't been another Davidic king since that time. And so the question is, did God mess this thing up, right? I mean, did he mess this up a little bit? Was he getting too far ahead of himself? And, and the answer is no. The answer is no. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, the very first part has the genealogy. For a reason. Genealogies are important, especially in that culture. Genealogy is everything. And in the genealogy, which follows Joseph's line, okay, you have the line of the kings. Or Joseph descends straight from the kings. Jesus, when he's ministering, constantly speaks about the kingdom of God. 
He's establishing the kingdom of God. It is coming. It is coming. It is not physical yet. And we'll talk about this again. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll talk about this again next week, about a physical kingdom of God. But it's not here yet. But he is establishing the kingdom of God in a very spiritual way, for sure. When he's executed, he is not executed by the Romans because he's the Savior. So that, they don't care about that. The Jews cared, but they, the Pilate did not care. He's not executed for being a savior. He's not executed because he was a crazy person. No, he's executed because he claimed to be a king. If you're Rome, you cannot tolerate someone walking around claiming to be king of the Jews. That's not going to happen. In fact, John 19, 19 says this, Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, your name, your place of origin, the king of the Jews. Crime you've committed. That's how we know that there were two thieves executing on the side, because you had the crime posted above your, your head. And the signs written in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. So all would know that Jesus claimed to be a king. As the people gather in Pilate's courtyard, where they shout, we have no king but Caesar, right? He's it. It's insurrection because they know that for Rome to execute Jesus, that's not going to happen unless they can paint Jesus as this revolutionary trying to establish an alternative rebel kingdom. And so Pilate acquiesces and he's killed and crucified as a king. Israel has the land given to them by God. They have the promise of an eternal king who we know to be Jesus Christ. Christ descends from, David, from, from Abraham uh, through the line of David. And his resurrection ushers in this era of salvation. All the nations of the world are blessed through Abraham because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this new covenant, how God will be known personally. It's not about keeping laws and regulations. And No, now, now it's written on your hearts. And now you will know the Lord in a very personal way, in a way that hadn't been known before because of what Jesus would do. Throughout the Old Testament era, man, the prophets had spoken about a Savior. And as time went on, more and more revelation and details are, are given. And if you're the devil, you're watching all of this play out. And you can put two and two together, right? He's not, he's not stupid. He's pretty smart. He put two and two together. Abraham, I should focus on. That's where this special guy, a special, a special person God taught me is probably going to come from that, that, that person's line. That David, his line's going to go forever. God just made him a promise that his line will continue for all time. I should really focus on this guy, David, right here. And so what does Satan do? I, all throughout history, he tries to stop the Jewish people. He tried Pharaoh to stop it didn't work. He failed. He tries with Jezebel and Baal and Molech, and he fails. He tries with the Assyrians, and he fails. He tries with the Babylonians who came in to destroy Jerusalem and Judah, and he failed. He tries with Haman to eradicate the Jews. But God raises up a queen named Esther for such the right time as that to deliver Israel, and he failed. He tried with Herod, who gives this order that all the children, all the boys, two years and under, in the vicinity of this backwater town called Bethlehem, be wiped out and he still failed because every time God delivered his people because God has a purpose and it was leading up to Jesus who had blessed the world through his sacrifice and a resurrection yeah. 
As we're getting towards Jerusalem, Matthew 23, Jesus appears and, and, and he's with his disciples and he's walking towards Jerusalem for the final time. And he breaks down and he says this. He's weeping, he's crying, he's heartbroken. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not let me. And now, look, your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again. Remember, he's going to die and rise again this week. He'll never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's speaking of a different era. He's speaking of a point where Israel will one day welcome him as their Messiah and their Savior. So what has the devil sought to do? Well, he's tried to destroy the Jews to prevent the Messiah, right? And he failed to do that. Christ came and he died and he rose again. I mean, even up to the garden, Jesus is begging God, hey, is there another way? Let there be another way and I'll take that way, but not my will, your will. I mean, he's trying hard, but he fails. And I'm convinced throughout history that the enemy has tried to stamp out the Jewish people to prevent this day from happening, where yet again they will welcome this time with open arms their Messiah and their Savior. Anti-Semitism is not a political issue. And I'm going to be really clear about this. It is spiritual in nature. It is not political. It is spiritual. It's spiritual. No other ethnic group has been the target of annihilation like the Jews. It is not a coincidence. The Spanish Inquisition tried to stamp out the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula. It's not a coincidence. The, the Russians and the pogroms in Russia and in Prague and Ukraine and Poland tried to wipe out the Jews. Nazi Germany was not some kind of accident that happened. There comes a point where you look throughout the centuries and you see, okay, there's been so many efforts to not, not persecute, annihilate, get rid of, eradicate one people group throughout multiple centuries. I, that's not coincidence to me. That's a real enemy doing everything he can to eradicate the people of God to prevent this day that Christ talks about in Matthew 23 from happening again. And then in 1948, Israel was created. And we'll talk more about this next week because I'm going to kind of get a little bit ahead of myself. But Israel gets created. And when it does, it sets into motion a prophetic biblical timeline of events that has not culminated yet in the return of Christ, but will one day do so. What Christ speaks about in Matthew 23 will come to pass down the road. And I'm convinced that everything the enemy is doing today, including going back to what we've seen in October, has been try to prevent that day from happening. See, Pastor, doesn't he know that he lost? You know, he doesn't know everything. You ever been around somebody who's just so stubborn? Like, you know, like this, don't give up? That's this, this is this guy right here, for sure. The enemy is doing all that he can to destroy all that God has made and done and do everything he can to usurp the authority of God here in this world. I say, Pastor, this is a, a fantastic history lesson. It's <laughs> more than I probably cared to know. Why? Why do I care about this? Like, why? I mean, we're here in South Carolina. This is half a world away. The Jewish people have been targeted and they've survived. Like, I mean, just why, why do I care about this kind of thing? 
I think there's a couple of reasons why you should care. Aside from what I explained to you earlier about that Abrahamic covenant, which is the most important passage in the Old Testament right there. I think there's a couple of reasons. One, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. The very existence of the Jewish people today, of Israel, is a result of the promises that God has made, that God has kept. Those alone underscore the Lord keeps His word. And I just wonder for you today, as you're, as you're, as you're here this morning, like what promises has God spoken to you? What promises has the Lord told you about? Whisper to your heart things that God has desired for you. If God is faithful to keep His promises to Israel, don't you think the Lord is faithful to keep the promises He's made to you as well? I think we all kind of fall in this trap of thinking that the Lord keeps His promises and everything is going to be rosy. It's going to be a great picture, you know? It's like puppy dogs, unicorns, it'll be fantastic, right? Dancing bunnies, why not? This is fantastic stuff. That's the end result. Romans 8, 28, it's not for everybody, it's for believers. And Paul says, all things work together for good, for those called according to God's purpose. When you're a follower of Christ, the promise is everything works for your good in the end. It'll, it'll be that way in the end. It'll be great. You know what's not fun? The waiting. <laughs> the in-between, the journey is not fun. The journey is perilous. There's obstacles and challenges and valleys. It is tough. It is difficult. There's suffering and hardship and loss. There's all kinds of negative things that occur as you wait for God to fulfill His promises. One of my favorite passages there right now, it's, it's been Hebrews 11. And the author says this about the great people of faith. Guys like Abraham and Moses and, and, and David. He says this right here. He says, all those people, they all died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. Uh, in other words, even though they didn't live in the complete fulfillment of all God promised them, they believed God would carry that promise through to the end. Abraham never saw his descendants occupy the land that God gave. But he believed the Lord. David never saw the line of kings. He never saw Jesus, but he believed the Lord. Are you at a place in your walk today? And I'll be honest, I'm not there. I'm still working on it. But maybe you're more spiritual than me and you're there. Are you at a place in your walk where the Lord can give you a promise and give you a word? And even though you've not seen it happen yet, and you're getting along in years, and you may not ever see it, you still believe that even when you're gone, God will keep His word and keep His promise. That's a high mark of faith right there, if you can get that point. Lord, even if I don't see it, even if I don't get to enjoy those benefits, you promised, and I believe. I believe it. Number two. God includes you. Very simple. God includes you. The prophets were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles and early church leaders, they were, they were Jewish. Do you know that for the church, for Christianity, we were seen as part of Judaism. Up until about the third century, we kind of had a split a little bit in the eyes of folks in the Roman Empire. 
as a similar but distinct group. We are very similar. Paul, who wrote Romans 1, is Jewish. And he says this, that Christ first came for the Jew. Then he came for those of us who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles. Throughout Christ's own ministry, he remarks at different times, so he came to the people of Israel first. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul, he describes how Gentiles are being included in God's plan. And just, just to put it out there, most of us in the room today, we are Gentiles, we are non-Jewish people. And Paul says this in verse number 17, he says, But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. He's talking about Jews and the Jewish leadership who rejected Jesus here, okay? And you Gentiles, who are branches from a wild olive tree, you've been grafted in. And so now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that broken off. Let me be really clear here. We have not replaced Israel. We are a part of the people of God. We're not a replacement for the people of God. There's some different beliefs that are out there, but I think we should get this one out of the way. We have not replaced them. We are a part of them. You are just a branch, Paul says. You're, you're not the root. What is the root? The root is the, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you read all through Romans 11, Paul argues that Israel's future hope rests on God's covenant with those individuals, those people that he made so long ago. Gentile Christians, we don't originally belong here, but God has grafted us in. God has brought us in, not of anything that we did on our own, but because of Christ and what he did for us. And so now we're a part of the people of God, and we can enjoy the same spiritual benefits that the, the people of Israel are able to enjoy as well, but you should never lose sight that it was given to them first and originally. And you are now part of that because of the salvation and grace of God. Not because you're replacing anybody, because you're not. We have this promise of salvation and forgiveness and freedom and eternity because of what God did with Abraham through Jesus so many years ago. There should never be hostility, ever, between followers of Christ and the Jewish people. There shouldn't be. Now, you don't have to agree to the state of Israel. That's fine. That's a political entity. But with the Jewish people, there should never be hostility. There shouldn't. God's salvation came through His Son, through Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man, who chose to do this through the Jewish race. As we're going to see next week, God is not done with Israel yet. And the plans that God has for them have a direct impact on the future of believers in this world. They are tied together. What I'm going to do next week is show with you, share with you some of the signs to look for, some of the things you should pay attention to. My job as a pastor is not to give you this great, wonderful, pick-me-up message every week, although I like doing those because those are, those are fun. <laughs> My job is to equip you 
to do the work of the ministry, to equip you to understand Scripture, to equip you to understand what's happening in our world. And, and we're doing that in this teaching series right here as we're leading up into Thanksgiving. And we're going to continue that next week. But Larry, come on up, buddy. Play behind me here. Uh, we got to understand this morning, our spiritual heritage uh, did not come out of thin air. One of the things right now, and I'm taking a risk probably even telling you this, but it weighs in my heart, man. One of the things right now that just troubles me so much about America at the moment is the lack, not just of appreciation, but the lack of this desire to truly know our roots, who we are, where we come from, and that's across the whole spectrum. From a spiritual point of view, we didn't just appear out of nowhere. This didn't just happen, you know, by chance. There's a spiritual heritage that we should be appreciative of. That we are here because of the people that came before us, because of what God did before us. And Israel was important. They're important in God's plan and how it affects the world today and the world tomorrow. God keeps his promises, man. He keeps his promises. I don't know, perhaps you're here today and you're just struggling with that. I don't know if the Lord's given you a promise or a word that you've been waiting on. Maybe he's been waiting on for a long time. I, I find that the longer you go waiting for God to fulfill a promise that he's given you, the harder it is. It's not that you don't fully get behind God so much as it's just kind of like, look, God, you spoke me, you gave me that promise 30 years ago. And, I believe it when I see it. We kind of cheapen it a little bit. The Lord sees things far beyond what you and I can see. And if you're struggling with, with the promises today, man, be encouraged. God always keeps them. He's never failed to do it. Though things might be difficult, though the wait may be long, though the hardship and the struggle can be so real, God will keep the promise. And if you don't see it, maybe your kids will see it, or your grandkids, or the generations after you. You know, when God mentions himself in Scripture, he does not say, I am the God Jehovah of, of, of Israel, over and over. You know how he identifies himself, especially in the Old Testament era? I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm a generational God. I've been known through multiple generations. And I will work through multiple generations. It is not all about you. It is about those who have come after you. I am there. Do you believe God's promises? That he'll keep them. Even if you never see it. Even if you're never privileged to see it. Do you believe? Maybe you're here this morning and, and the promises are not your struggle. Perhaps you're here today and there's just this nagging feeling that you have in your life. Maybe you've had it for a while. But coming to Radiant for a couple of weeks, maybe, or watching online, you're like, you know what? I've got this feeling that this tugging at my heart, that everything they're talking about, even if it doesn't make sense to me, there's something about it that seems legit. Man, it seems there's something behind this. I can't put my finger on it, but I'm wildly attracted to this. What is it? Can I tell you what that is? Let me help you out a little bit. It's the Spirit of God tugging on your heartstrings and saying, hey, listen up. All this right here that you just can't get away from, that you just dropped it, 
this is for you. This is, this, this is the real deal right here. He's grabbing your attention. This promise through Abraham and David and then that Christ carried out through for us is for you. Not to erase your past sins necessarily because God doesn't actually do that. What God does, I think, is so much greater than that. He forgives you and He chooses to not remember. In other words, He chooses to never bring those past wrongs up again. You know how sometimes you get into a fight with somebody and uh, if it gets really intense, they'll remember things you did in the past and throw it back in your face like, hey, yeah, but at least I didn't do this or I wasn't like that or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the fight kind of winds down, especially if it's something very painful they brought up. That God says, I'll never do that. I know what you've done. I know your thoughts. I know all that. You know what I'll never do? I'll never use it against you because I've forgiven you. Now the enemy does that. He's the accuser. He'll bring it back, but God never will. He won't do it this morning for you. He says, I want to forgive you and choose not to remember those sins in your life any longer. But all you have to do, what you have to do is you got to do what Abraham did. You got to say, I want in. I'm all in. I'm there. I'm all in. Let's go. I want to lead you in a prayer that will allow Christ to come into your life, to forgive you, and to be Lord of your life. And then I want to pray for those of you this morning, perhaps you're here and you're struggling with promises, okay? I want to pray with you for that as well. But let's start off with this. If you're here this morning and, and you just said, Pastor, that's me, this nagging feeling, this is, this is the Lord in my life. I, I, I get it now. It makes sense to me. I want to say yes. What do I do? We're going to say a prayer that I'll model for you. You don't got to say it out loud. But it's going to go something like, like what I'm about to share with you in a second. And you ask Christ to become your Savior and your Lord. So bow your heads, close your eyes if you would around the room. That's you this morning, got that nagging feeling saying, man, I need to give my life over to Jesus. What do I do? We start with this prayer. It goes like this. Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. I know I've done the wrong stuff. I know I've done some things and said some things. I've lived a certain way, God, that I know does not bring honor to you. And I'm here today, Father, saying I, I'm kind of over this. I'm done with this. I've, I need to get a new life. I need to get together. Lord, will you forgive me of my sin? Will you forgive me of the wrong that I've done? Take my past and just bury it. Don't bring it back again, God. I, I, I want a new start and a new life. And if you can give me that, Lord, I, I, I want it. Forgive me and cleanse me of my sins. Be my Savior. We say Savior because He saves us from our wrongs. Be my Savior. Save me from the wrong things. Save me from this life of, of, of sin. But I just don't want to make you my Savior. Lord, I recognize this morning that living my own way, doing my own thing, has not worked out. <laughs> I make a lot of mistakes. I don't always make the right choices. And doing things my way has caused a lot more pain. And so this morning, Lord, here's what I want to do. I want to surrender my life fully to you. From this day forward, will you be the Lord of my life, where I will follow you? Will you lead me? Will you do in my life what you need to do? And God, I promise, man, from this day forward, I'm going to do the best I can to serve you with all of my heart. I'm going to go all in following after you. 
Will you lead me and will you guide me in a way that I can never lead and guide myself? Be my Savior and be my Lord today. Father, for those who are struggling with promises and words that you've given to them, maybe they've been carrying these words, God, for decades and nothing has happened yet. The waiting can be excruciating. The waiting can be so discouraging and painful. Lord, I pray you would encourage them today. Remind them you do not fail to live up to your promises. You always carry them through. You carried every promise you made to Abraham through, to David. Lord, you, you've carried all those promises out through Jeremiah, this new covenant that Jesus established with us. Lord, you're not going to stop now. And Lord, I pray you would get us to a place within our faith where even if we don't see the fulfillment of some promises or words you've given us in our lifetime, may you encourage us. Lord, we're going to see the fulfillment in those that come after us. Why? Because God, you keep your promises. And we're going to get to a place where we're okay with that. We're okay if we never see it because we believe it. We believe you'll carry that promise through. We believe, God, your word stands. We believe, Lord, that you're going to follow through with your commitments to us. Thank you for what you've done to our, through us. And, and God, thank you for the people of Israel. Thank you, Lord, for your son came and died for us so we could be free from sin and unrighteousness. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.